brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition. For all you kids out there, the official podcast of your baseball prospectus Mets local site. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week, once again, is Jarrett Seidler. Jarrett, this is like the last nice weekend of the year, I have a feeling, and I'm sitting in my room recording this podcast instead of sitting on my patio drinking a Swiss cartel, which is what I'm drinking. Too much sound out there? Yeah, it's a little too windy. I know you're like in the middle of nowhere, so you don't have like any ambient sound. We're, I mean, we're fairly close to what can be considered a major road for the area, but, you know, there's not a lot of traffic, so. Yeah. We took the dog to the park. Nice. Recorded, so I've got my exercise in. It's gorgeous out. And it's all downhill yeah. from here. We're a couple of days. Like, I always sort of associate daylight savings time or the end of daylight savings time with the end of baseball it's until they yeah, move it back pretty at close. least. Yeah. But they start getting like really dark when I leave work, and that's just depressing. It's uh, daylight savings time is what two weeks? I think it's two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. We start I mean, it's all right. It, it, it's getting dark. What about six p.m. Six yeah. ten? Yeah. The long slog through the hot stove slash off season coming up. Yeah, we're um, not there yet, and we really have no match news to talk about this week. So, what you mean, John Neese's declined option is not Mets news? I will say you were definitely panicking a few weeks ago. Not panicking, but you were unsure if this would truly be the end of John Neese when we went over John Neese in our sort of roster wrap up. I think there's there's a chance John Neese shows back up. Well, I'm not gonna say John Neese's baseball career is over, but. You know, God willing, we'll never mention him on the podcast. Is a in, in current Met news, I suppose. It's I, it, dude. They've brought so many dudes back that like, would you be shocked if they bring him back as like a second lefty reliever at some point? No, like I wouldn't be shocked if Eric Young Jr. shows up next year in September either, as they still continue to not roster Champ Stewart. Yeah, I, the Champ Stewart thing's just weird. I, I the more I think about that, like that. I feel like that didn't even come up amongst like beat writers and stuff. So I don't know if Alderson even got asked the question at any point, but the so more I, they don't really was... like that. Those aren't quite like say what you will about the Mets beat and we can have an entire podcast analyzing, dissecting, whatever that that's just not the kind of stuff they ask. It just isn't like but, trying to get but, a, like Jay, familiar. Stop throwing his split this year. You would think that would be a fairly major story. Nobody wrote about it. It's just like he was—he is such a perfect fit for a K 
contending roster that had like no speed on the bench at all. Like, you know, you're you're pinch running with guys like Nimmo and Kelly that are Robert like you know, Yeah, like five runners. And uh, it, it's just like such a perfect fit and they, you know, they had they could have made a forty man spot for him, you know, yeah. they could have put the ground on the sixty day. I mean, I don't think he gets added. We discussed this already and we'll discuss it when we get to rule five ads, but starting his starting his clock now wouldn't be a huge deal or anything he's already made it to double a like last year you could argue he struggled in st lucie is a little bit old for the league do you want to start the clock that soon can you actually keep him up for every year as a contending team on the 40 but i mean there's always guys on the 60 day there's always marginal relievers you can drop that won't have as much value at the end of the season as champ stewart will so and you probably could get him through waivers if you have to. I mean, you know, spoiler alert, he's in the BP annual, so I think there's a decent shot he's either going to get added to the 40 or roll 5. Sure. That's why I put him in. That's why I put him in. Um, he was in the annual last year, too. I mean, he's a lie now, Yeah, Champ but... Stewart has been in more annuals as a prospect than Jacob deGrom, for example. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is... Uh, we expect that at some point Champ Stewart's going to have something like a significant major league career you know i don't know if it's i don't get how you define significant major league career but those kind of guys end up having a role yeah like i would not be shocked for example if we're going to discuss the mets prospect list in a little bit but that champ stewart plays more major league games than wilmer becerra I would put that over 50%, actually. But on a, now, prospect, would... on a prospect list, he's not going to rank as high as Wilmer Becerra because the 75th percentile outcome for Wilmer Becerra is much higher than it is for Champ Stewart. That's where I was going to go. I was going to put the median number of games for Champ Stewart way higher. Right. But if you're just doing Champ Stewart, or, or excuse me, for Wilmer Becerra way higher, because if Wilmer Becerra has a significant major league career, it's likely that he's like a regular for a few years. Right. But I am much more sure that Champ Stewart plays in the majors. Right. If you had to bet who was going to play 100 games in the majors, it would be Champ Stewart. If it was going to be 500 games, you'd bet Wilmer Becerra. Yes. Because Champ Stewart's almost certainly never going to hit enough to be anything more than a fourth, fifth outfielder. So we're a little, a we're a little over five down. minutes into the show. We haven't introduced yeah. the show, and we're talking about Champ Stewart. This is what happens in the middle of October. Yes. So in the first half of the show, we will talk about what Little Mets news there is, which is essentially John Neese's option being declined and Jose Reyes's option being picked up. We'll also, last year, again, I went back to see what the fuck I did in Amazing Avenue Audio two years ago when I didn't, when I had the same situation. I did like a road to the (laughs) Mets prospect list. So we'll do that again. I mean, spoiler alert. This is like the uh, road to WrestleMania? Yeah. So it's just like the Royal Rumble? I've already written the Mets prospect list, and it's going up like fourth because we're starting with the NL East. So I can't. I gotta like pretend that I haven't written it. I have the under twenty five yes. list, which I've ranked but haven't written the profiles for yet. But I think but, this week at least we'll do like sort of a general overview of the system and where we are. Yeah, compared which, to last year and so on and, and so forth. 
I don't think any of the prospect list rank like it's not shocking. There's nothing shocking on there now. Yeah, I mean, I expect most Mets prospect lists are probably going to contain, you know, eight or nine of the same ten guys. I think think if I had to like look at it and really drill down, like the top fifteen is going to be very very similar for everyone. Just the order will be a little different. Yeah, I was I was gonna say I wouldn't be surprised if every major top ten list like constitutes only like thirteen or fourteen guys total. Yeah. And in general, I think the top fives are gonna be pretty similar everywhere too. Yep. Although probably in different orders. Yep. I agree with all of that. And that's the first half of the show. The second half of the show there is still baseball going on. Cubs and the Indians will face off in the fall classic coming up this week. And to counteract now noted Cubs stan Jake, uh, Jarrett Seidler, we will have <laughs> Kate, our good friend Kate Morrison on the show to help preview the World Series. You're you're like the number one. It's like your second favorite team now, based on your BP. Uh, yeah, six yes. right up. So so I, I got you. the I got the honor of writing the Cubs win the pennant gamer on BP, and so I kind of went it's gone back viral. And- Yes, I did a Theo Epstein retrospective after discovering that, depending on exactly when you counted Epstein hired, it was something like five years to the day from his hiring date to um, the game where they won the pennant. And I mean, it's, it's well known that you're a friend of Cubs fans everywhere. So yes, and you know it, it's you know I I think it's a pretty good story. Um, sure. Yeah, the, yes, the Cubs making their first World Series in no, but a I, century. I mean, well, in the, you know, the, 1945 just, or whatever it is uh, just drilling down to the Theo Epstein and how he built the team part. Sure. Is where I was going. Yeah, um, it's it's a very interesting construction. There's a lot of reclamation projects, um, and then when they went for it. Boy, did they go for it. I mean, they've spent a ton of money in free agency the last couple of years, and they've made pretty significant buy-now trades and all of that fun stuff. We'll get there. We will. And then in the third half of the show, we'll answer your correspondence, probably talk about wrestling at some point, and the other things we do at the end of the show when we just sort of peter out and get bored. Answer Brady's email. Answer Brady's emails. But for now, we'll start with the Mets news of the week. The Mets declined John Neese's option, Jarrett. I mean, we did when John Neese was acquired, like, briefly. You did, let's be clear. Ponder the possibility that he would, like, have, like, a J.A. Hap, like, second half and get the option picked off. Spoiler alert, that did not happen. (laughs) No. (laughs) He was bad, and then he was hurt. Oh, he was bad, then he was hurt, and then he continued to be bad while hurt, and then he was just hurt. Actually, he was, like, good for, like, the first, like, week and a half out of the pen. All right, fine. And I, I'm sure he'll pick up somewhere as a swingman relief option competing for a starting pitching job in spring training at $3 million a year or something. Plus incentives, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, realistically, Dylan G got that contract, so. Dylan G got it as an NRI, but yeah, he did. Yeah, make- he had a split deal. Uh- yeah, yeah. yeah, but I think he was also. I think that was like a wink, wink. Yeah, yeah, he had a split deal with like a March thirty first yeah. opt out or whatever. And it was like a wink, wink. You're making the team. Yeah, yeah, you, sure. Yeah, not like the Royals had a ton of starting pitching or pitching options. So, yeah, which I mean, kind of similar to perhaps Jim Henderson's deal with the Mets this past year. Yeah, which was kind of the same thing. But I imagine somebody will take John Neeson on that deal because he's left handed and he can still pitch a little bit. 
he's not that far removed from major league success. You know, sure. John Neese in 2015 was a slightly below average major league pitcher. And that has value. Yeah. Do we just want to throw him on the Angels like everybody else we've been lately? <laughs> I mean, he's got to be an upgrade over Jared Weaver, right? I could, you know, I could see, uh, <laughs> I could see like a team that's bottomed out or close to bottoming out that needs to fill innings. Um, bringing him in just to give them 160, 180 innings as a starter. Like, Cincinnati seems like a logical landing spot for him. With how homer-prone Nice has gotten lately. No, I know, but he's from Ohio, and they're going to need somebody to be able to give them some rotation depth with guys like Stevenson and, you know, Amir Garrett transitioning into a major league role. This is the kind of guy that literally anybody can pick up because even like your tanking teams, well, yeah. quote tanking teams, need you know somebody to just fill two hundred innings and maybe uh, Atlanta, Atlanta lucky. starters this year, yeah, same kind of. I mean, they're starting their system's really deep, so their system I've written up, but a lot of their, like, their pitching's all far away for the most part. So they need a guy like John Neese to sort of bridge them to. John Neese is like the crappy team's version of Bartolo Colon, basically. Right, the the actual like per inning quality isn't as good, and he probably won't give you as many innings given his durability issues. But yes, but everybody needs like this fifth, sixth starter yeah. just kind but, of there. And the Mets don't the- is what it comes down to, really, because their fifth, sixth starter is like Seth Lugo, Robert Gazelman, Gabriel Yanoa. Well, no, the Mets need a fifth, sixth starter. Their fifth, sixth starter just has to be middle of the rotation quality. Yes, that's the difference. Right. So that's where you end up with the Bartolo Colon instead of a John Neese. Or, you know, a Mike, you know, the Cubs have Mike Montgomery instead of that kind of guy. You know, you, you want that quality of guy instead of John Neese's quality of guy. You know, the Red Sox have, like, Clay Buckles. Clay Buckles? Other... They might actually pick up that option. It's, what is it, like, a, it's not that much, like $12 million, is it? Yeah, that's I mean, like he's, the... like... That's like one of the two most interesting option decisions that teams have, and I think the other one is Jay Bruce. Actually, they're going to pick up the Jay Bruce option, Jared. I got some bad news for you. Ugh. Ugh. I mean, are they picking up the Jay Bruce option to keep Jay Bruce or to trade Jay Bruce? That I don't know. Uh-huh. I would probably lean seventy-five twenty-five keep, if I had to guess. This is just going to be so infuriating to watch. Be, uh, like, trust me, there will be far more infuriating things they'll do this offseason that we'll talk about than pick up Jay Bruce's option. But aesthetically, from somebody yes, that yes, watches... Sure. But I mean, he could easily be... Games. He could be a 260, 25 to 30 home run guy next year for them. He and could I wouldn't be, be shocked. And it still looks bad. It's sure. not fun to watch. No, it isn't. You know, he's 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 going to miss a bunch of pitches badly. He's a horror show in right field. Like, I really didn't buy the defensive metrics, having not watched Jay Bruce enough, and the Mets went out there and told everybody that they thought the defensive metrics were wrong. The defensive metrics are not wrong. He's really bad out there. It might be a stopped clock kind of situation, but yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, these defensive metrics are generally good at sorting, like, really bad and really good. Like, Francisco Lindor is at the top of most of the defensive metrics. Brandon Crawford is another one. Yeah. Andrelton Simmons. Yeah. They perhaps don't do well with scale and exact sorting, but, you know, usually the picture is within the fuzziness part. And 
man, Jay Bruce is bad. Remember when they acquired Jay Bruce, they were floating the idea that he might play center? I do remember that, Jarrett. Holy shit. Yeah. Did... <sighs> Somehow it will not be the most infuriating thing they do this offseason. Don't worry about it. Oh, of course. Of course. I'm, I'm waiting for Yoin assessment signs with the Washington Nationals for, you know, like four years and $110 million or yeah. something like that. Speaking of infuriating things, the uh, Mets picked up Jose Reyes's option, which is... Look, as a baseball decision, I don't think we can count on David Wright being ready for opening day. Jose Reyes will continue to be an above-average player at third base, even yeah, though he's not great defensively. He'll probably give you... It's, it, it's just, right, it's right just fucking or... wonderful that the Mets got an above-average player for the league minimum because of domestic violence stuff. That's that's wonderful. That's great. Awesome. So I, I do want to say, R.J. Anderson wrote about this at CBS Sports this week and basically covered everything that I would cover. And as I've said and has come up on the podcast in recent weeks, I've made a point of sort of not talking about Jose Reyes at all on the show because I just don't really have anything more to say than I had in July. But yeah, we did a podcast with Emma Spann, if you want to hear our deeper thoughts on Jose Reyes. We're at the point now where that kind of, it's it's funny how this kind of thing works, where we're far enough removed from it now that it's just not, like, this kind of option pickup isn't going to get attention, and that's fine, and look. Oh yeah, they put a big old smiling picture of Jose Reyes on the Mets Instagram the other day. And I'm not gonna, like I said back then, I don't, I don't want to tell you how to feel about this. You can feel however you like. But here is the thing. This is my sort of last bit on the piece. You simply cannot remove Jose Reyes being a Met in 2017 from the domestic violence incident because he it's... would not have been available to them. It's directly why they have him, and it's directly why they have him for the league minimum. The Rockies would have kept him, or they would have traded him, because they were trying to deal him after they got him, but it would have been for Ahmed Rosario, because they were asking for Glaber Torres from the Yankees. Or from no, the, they were asking for Jorge Mateo. Jorge Mateo, sorry. From the Yankees. From the Yankees. So that's what the price would have been, and the Mets wouldn't have met it, and the Mets couldn't afford to take on his full salary. So whatever happens... In 2017, it's literally the only reason Jose Reyes is a Met. You cannot separate. I know you don't want to think about it, and that's fine. But you cannot separate the fact that he is a Met in 2017 from what happened in Hawaii. You just can't. You know, so the narrative was when the Mets picked up Jose Reyes was that he was done. There was really no reason to believe that he he was done. He had a bad half season in Colorado, basically. He had a bad half season when he was playing hurt. And he came to the Mets, and he hit literally exactly to his career averages. He yep. hit to his career average OPS with within a point of his career average OPS plus. If you want to talk he's about the performance, you know, he doesn't look great from the left side. You know, he's diminished as a defensive player, but yep. he's went. He's still, you know, he's an like, average. Whatever, he's a minus third five baseman. third baseman or whatever. Yeah, average for average third baseman. Um, as a hitter, he's basically what he always was yep. outside of the year where he randomly hit like 340 he doesn't have the high-end speed anymore but he's still a plus runner the arms yeah. diminished a little bit in the field you know it is what it is yeah he's and a, he's, you know, probably, he's a he will, he's a valuable major league regular 
Yes, this is like a paying roll... 650000 for. Yes, they got a Roll 55 Major League player for $625,000 or whatever the Major League minimum is supposed to be next year, which may change in the new CBA, which we'll actually have a question about. And Colorado is still paying him the $20 million. Yeah. And, which I think um, it's more than that because, unsurprisingly, the Marlins like incredibly backloaded that contract. The Mets and Sandy Alderson specifically leveraged the fact that Reyes essentially, I don't know whether he had other suitors, but the greatest mutual interest was between Reyes and the Mets to leverage the existence of this team option so Reyes couldn't go out there and sign a multi-year deal this year, Yep, which he could have done. Yep, based had on Jose. what he did in the second half of the season. Yes, somebody would. They would have constructed a multi-year deal, so he would have gotten guaranteed money in 2018. Then a new team would have paid. Yep. Um, and this, the Jose Reyes being on the Mets for this minimum salary is because the Mets leveraged the domestic violence allegations against him. <laughs> and you, again, as Jeff said, you can feel however you want to feel about that. And I think and we've I, been clear. We. Both would rather be rooting wholeheartedly for Jose Reyes as a Met right now. You know, sure. I Somewhere in the bottom of my closet, I have a Jose Reyes jersey and, you know. I do too. You know, and I, I would prefer that none of this had happened, but I, you know, you, you can, you know, I, I would encourage people to feel however they want to feel about it, but. It's not, you know... I don't think you can just sweep it under the rug now is, is my sort of overarching point here. No, and I understand that there have been people that have been trying to differentiate it from Meraldus Chapman. Reyes has at least publicly went through the motions of significant contrition, whereas Meraldus Chapman is not, and some of the other players in similar situations have not. Um, I just don't really care. I don't want the guy on the team. I don't want to have to, you know, there was a, I think it was the game against the twins. The game, the game when Granderson hit two home runs. Yeah. Yeah. He he tied it. Yeah. And, um, Reyes at one point had a chance to walk that game off and I did not want him to walk the game off. I was there. Um, I was much happier that Curtis Granderson did instead. I don't want to have these weird, conflicted feelings. It makes the experience as a fan less enjoyable. So you don't have strong feelings about the moon landing being faked? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if that's the worst thing that Curtis Granderson's ever done in between contributing, like, tens of millions of dollars to inner-city baseball (laughs) in Chicago. Sure. I think we're all entitled to our conspiracy theories, as you are based on the G-chats you've been sending me all week. Or that, actually, that actually was in Slack, so never mind. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We'll move on to the Mets prospect system now. Let's not, let's not, let's not discuss uh, Vladimir <laughs> Putin too much on this podcast. Uh, so we are about, I don't know, I should look at the actual schedule. I will say three to four weeks away from the Mets prospect list going up at baseball so perspectives. Very is. exciting. Yeah. This is the stuff we live for, apparently. It was better when I wasn't writing 30 of them, but it was more fun Um, for me, personally. Yeah, I'm sure it was. My marriage was more stable, you know, little stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
do you want to do tonight, honey? I'm going to watch a bunch of Sean Newcomb starts. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> so is it, is it safe to say that Jess is not a fan of the BP Top 30 right now? Not so much, no. Okay. It'll get better in, you know, March, I yeah, guess. roughly. February. February. She's in Arizona next week, so I'm going to try to, like, pack in as much. Sean Newcomb. Sean Newcomb and I don't even know who else at this point. A bunch of Marlins dudes I don't care about into uh, uh, into next week. It's bad. so bad. The Mets system, I mean, though, I'm, is I'm, on the I'm rise. I've seen the draft list. It's just bad. It's not good, yeah. It's like it's like really amazing how bad they've stripped out that system. Yep. And they uh, got Luis Castillo back, or it would have been worse. Yeah. Because he might be their second best prospect, depending on what you want to deal with, uh, or how you want to deal with Tyler Kolick. Yeah. I don't know how I want to deal with Tyler Kolick yet. I should probably figure that out. Who did they draft in the first round this Rex year? Did they have... Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. he's like, uh, he's like our, one of the, maybe the best prep pitcher in the class, theoretically. So he's the back number end, one prospect. Yeah, back-end top so, 100 kind of guy, maybe. Yeah, but um, not somebody that's going to help within, you know, the next four seasons probably yeah. um, well i'm so i'm doing i don't know how we started talking about the marlin system but here we are so i'm doing yeah. short essays about each team which seemed like a better idea in theory than when i had to actually sit down to write them but my sort of topic for the marlins is it doesn't really matter if they keep stripping their system because whatever they get back when they trade giancarlo stanton and christian yelich in two years will completely replenish it and they'll just do this again because that's what they do and they've actually gotten pretty good at it like, even going back to the Jose Reyes trade yeah, and Mark Burley a few years ago, you know, they got Justin good, Nicolino yeah, and, and uh, who else? Uh, the outfielder that ended up in Jake Marisnik. Yeah, ended up in Houston or whatever for a while. Yeah. And now is in like, is Marisnik like in Minnesota or something? I can't even keep track at this point. I don't, did he get reflipped somewhere? I, I think know. so. He was in Houston the last I looked. Yeah, he's still in Houston. Oh, he's still in Houston. Who am I thinking of in Minnesota? I feel like some other Marlins prospect popped up there recently. But no, it's the actually it's the old Houston prospect who they traded to Pittsburgh for. Uh... What's his name? Who am I thinking of? I have no idea. No, I, I, mean, I I know who I'm thinking of. Hang on, I'll look it up. This is already stunning radio. It's going to be a long off-season, guys, just so you know. I am. I feel like of... our listeners are probably used to this by now. Sure. By and large. What am I thinking of? Because he had like a randomly good season. Robbie Grossman is who I'm thinking of. Yes. He had an Robbie 828 Grossman. OPS this year. In, uh... Robbie Grossman was one of the, those dudes that they offered the Jonathan Singleton contract to and turned it down. Yeah. And. He ended up getting, I don't know how he ended up in Minnesota, but he got traded for Wandy Rodriguez. That's who I'm thinking oh, of. Oh, God. Then he got released, signed with the Indians, got released by the Indians, and ended up on the Twins this year. Indians could use them right now. Sure. Coco Crisp, everyday World Series outfielder. Didn't he like, hit a big home run in the last... Uh... That, yeah, he's been really good in the playoffs. Yeah. I mean, he was just like a random waiver claim trade, and he was... He's, he's kind of still doing the Coco Crisp thing. Yeah, I feel like, like, I don't know. I feel like Coco like Crisp a, is 
It's like a All mediocre right. 700 OPS. Yeah. With like, it's like a roll five-ish kind of guy. Yeah. That's fine. Like good defense and left. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, their outfield was so decimated this year that yeah. Coco Crisp is a viable upgrade. But the Mets system. Can we get to the Mets system? <laughs> sure. Um, so really the only graduation was Steven Matz, which is significant because he's a top 10 prospect. What, you mean Seth Lugo is not significant? Well, in terms of rating the overall strength of the system, no. Okay. Would Seth Lugo be a top 10 prospect in this system if he was still eligible? So I guess we decided that TJ Rivera wasn't. Right. Is it really any different? Well, I think Lugo's floor is higher. But it's like, it's the same thing, right? I mean, uh, TJ Rivera could be a complete mirage and hit an empty 240 next year. Seth Lugo could put up a five VRA as a seventh inning guy, too. Yeah, I think we're more confident that... Are we more confident that Seth Lugo is a roll four middle reliever than TJ Rivera is a roll four middle infielder? (laughs) A little, but not by that much. Yeah, all right. I mean... I don't think think you're wrong, necessarily. It's it's like really weird trying to rank these guys against like Wilmer Becerra or Tomas Nito because they're just... Or Andres Jimenez, especially. Yeah. because they're at such different points in their career. But the nice thing is, after graduating Stephen Matz, they got a lefty with similar upside out of nowhere. Yeah. Hi, Thomas Lepucky. Yes. And I think, you know, generally, if you look at the guys, it's I don't think it's a spoiler alert to say that the top ten isn't, at least the names are very similar to the names that were there last year. Everyone got a little bit closer to the majors and didn't really do anything to negatively affect their prospect stock. Um, and obviously, Gesellman and Zipaki's prospect stock is a million times up. Yeah. Um, and sort of sketching it out, I think they're deeper 11 through 20 than they were last year. That's what I mean, Justin Dunn is not an insignificant addition to the top 10 either. No. Um, I don't think that's a spoiler that Justin Dunn's in the top 10. I would hope not. Yeah. You know, you probably, given the draft pick stock that they had, you probably would have hoped to get more top 15 system prospects than yeah. just one. I agree with that. And I mean, um, Kay's injury, obviously, yeah, makes that uh, a little more difficult because a healthy Anthony Kay is in that general range. They didn't... Just like 8 to 15 or something like that. Yeah, like, they didn't really move money around to get a big number guy I mean, Plank, in the supplemental we, first I, I don't second. feel confident enough about... Yeah, they Max ended up Plank moving money... Too. They ended up moving money around to buy out some prep dudes later on instead of buying out... I don't out. think Plank threw a pitch in the GCL either. I know Cleveland pitched a little bit. and was kind of a mess. He but. did not because he was one of three players that I needed added to the database for the, for the book. Yeah. Three players were Plank, K and Tim Tebow. Cause they, <laughs> none of the, th- none of <laughs> the three. Made the database, yeah. yeah. I just, it's funny. I was talking to a mutual scout friend of ours, who I'm sure you'll be able to identify from that information. Um, before a game in Brooklyn, and he met, and I mentioned that I was coming to 
catch up on some of the draftees I didn't get see at the beginning of the year. He's like, I could have saved you the time. There's nothing there. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I mean, I like Blake Tabiri, but, you know, guys like Woodman, C, and Paez, and they're fourth and fifth round college picks. So I don't know. I, I think oh. sort of the general casual Mets prospect watcher has outsized expectations for that kind of profile. I mean, and, and I've made I know the mistake of, of ginning that up a little bit with guys like Jared King in the past, but we've talked about, I don't know whether we're going to do this, but we've talked about for BP Mets creating a much longer prospect list than the one that, that exists. So. Whether it's, you know, 30, 40, 50, whatever. Uh, these are guys that are going to be towards the back of that list. Yeah. Um, you know, or if we only do 30, they might not even be on it. Yeah. Um, they're really deep in the system. Like they're behind like the Kevin McGowan's and Andrew those Church kind of guys. And Andrew Church, Luis Guillorme. Sure. These are the guys that, you know, Colby Woodmancy was not in consideration to make the book. And yeah. that basically means he's not in the top 20 prospects or 25 prospects. Yeah. Um, at least in my opinion. And given that I looped you in on that, I would suspect that's also your opinion. Right. I'm going to actually pull up my master list here. Hang on. Just so I can refresh my memory of what I've actually been thinking about this. You know, the the guys that would probably make a top 30 for the Mets out of this year's draft as of right now are Dunn, K, Alonzo, Plank, and maybe Tiberi. Yeah, I mean, that jives with what I have on my sheet here, more or less. Yeah. Um. But I think it is, like, a better... Like, it was... I think I ranked it, or we ranked it somewhere 15 to 20 last year. It's going to go up Yeah, I think it's still probably middle of the packs. It's not much, much better than it was last year, but it's improved. It's deeper. I don't know how much being deeper 11 through 20 matters for this kind of stuff. Because it, it, it a, definitely lacks impact talent at the top. Well, I've got Ahmed Rosario. Yeah, but I mean, if you compare it to, I'm trying to think of like a generic good system. Uh, let's go with generic good system. Uh, Atlanta. That's like the best system in baseball. It's not what I'm looking for. Uh, generic good system would be like the Twins, I feel like. Sure. Are they actually still good? Probably. Yeah, so like guys that are... Well, actually, they're not as the good. The Phillies. They're not good at the top anymore. The, the, Phillies. Phillies, the Phillies are a better example, sure. Yeah, the Phillies um, are, are good. You know, the Phillies are going to have serious... You know, they have a Ahmed Rosario comparable prospect at the top in J.P. Crawford. Yes. And then They've... they have like literally seven other guys that were in contention for the top 101. Whereas the Mets have three or four. Right. And then they have, like, their 11 through 20 is much more interesting. Yes. Like, Like, this is kind of a spoiler, but they have a guy, you know, Andrew Knapp, who was top 10 in their system last year. In that range now and could be a, you know, a Tomas Nito type catcher. Yes, so their 17th best prospect is roughly equivalent to the Mets 10th, sure. give or take. Yeah. Um, you know, guys that could play in the majors, like uh, Devi Grouillon and 
Albert Torado didn't even make my top 20. Yeah. Jose Pujols. Jose Pujols also didn't make my top 20. Um, I know. I'm actually writing about him as a prospect of note because he didn't make my top 20. Yeah, and they've got, you know, there's some... They had a lot of pitchers in Lakewood this year that could pop up as, like, middle relievers, like, you know... Luke Leftwich, like you, you never think about Luke Leftwich, but right. they've they've got a lot more Luke Leftwiches in the Mets still. Yes, and that matters. And that's kind of the thing about the Mets system. Like, if you want to look at the weaknesses, it's very bifurcated right now. Yes, with like the close to the major guys or guys that even have already played in the majors, like you know Gazelman, Chikini, and Nimmo, and you know Dom Smith will be knocking on the door next year too in AAA, and yeah. then guys that are further away like Jimenez and Desmond Lindsay and Dunn could move quickly but he's going to start in a ball like there's like you look at that double a team next year it's not great that's sort yeah. of like the way I, I I gauge it like what does their double a team look like next year yeah uh, whereas Romer Becerra potentially depending on how they want to handle his recovery from the I, shoulder surgery I think he starts in double a I think so too I mean, he's not I gonna be, he be 22 next year so yeah, the the I mean, if we're assuming that he's going on the forty this year, which right. I can't imagine. I mean, they he's could not. give him like the six weeks in St. Lucie. They do that with guys, but the clock starts ticking. Here. Right, but past him, the best prospect at that level is probably Luigi Arme. Yeah, and I, I think they will start Molina in St. Lucie for a while. You know, and I again, like Luigi, Luigi, look, nobody likes Luigi Arme more than me. So Luigi Arme is probably a top twenty prospect in the system. Yeah, his father has a top. 10 Twitter in the system. Sure. Maybe a top 10 Twitter in minor league baseball. I, I don't know if I mentioned on the show before, but he sent me like the world's nicest email ever. I think after last season. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a guy Which is unusual when dealing with the family of prospects. I you know, say. he's a guy that has a pretty good chance to be like Matt Reynolds in two years. Wilfredo Tovar is like the obvious comp. I think he's better than Wilfredo Tovar. I think, I think he, he hits. Too. I think he hits more than yeah. Wilfredo Tovar. It, it's it's weird because Tovar. The thing about Tovar is his arm was plus, which yeah. made the shortstop profile a little like, I think more palatable. Guillermo's got better infield action. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Guillermo has literally the best infield actions I've ever seen. So I would go that far. But yeah, they're really I mean, dude. Yeah, but we're getting into, like, Brendan Ryan and Francisco Lindor. Oh, I know we are. I mean, you just yeah. want to talk about actions, like, purely actions? <sighs> Brendan Ryan was awful. Oh, I God, know, but it's... Field actions. I'm aware And this of is that. not... I'm not putting down the week your man, oh, I know. anyway. You know, I consider I mean, we're talking about, your like, man, like a, legit a potential... eight stops here right now. Yeah, Ryan I mean, I... Lindor, so... I think Louis Yorme's got a shot to be, like, you know... A, Six or seven defender yeah. shortstop. I'm just but. saying, just have fun with Lee Army next year when he shows up in Trenton. Just get there early for infield. That's all I'm saying. I, you know, hopefully they're on the weekend. Then. It's a show, man. Yeah. I think I saw him at extended in, uh, on the backfield. He's year. better now, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he is. Um, but yeah, yeah that, but, that's like literally it for. Uh, yeah, uh, to next year, you know, Champ Stewart again, probably. Like that's where we at, where we're at. Yeah, Champ Stewart's probably in the twenty to thirty range if we're ranking out. Yeah. Uh, do, do we make anything of the fact that Champ Stewart's kind of been hitting in like the WBC and the AFL? We talked about more? this two weeks ago, and the yeah. answer is still no. Okay. I mean, I'm just I'm trying. 
Do we, do we want to do the weekly Tim Tebow update? Tim Tebow got two hits. I did say yeah, he got two hits. Yeah, I mean, one of them was off of Dwayne Underwood, who's probably like going to pitch in the majors. Yep. So good for him. Sure. Um, I actually watched uh, Jordan rides the bus on Netflix yesterday. That was interesting to um, consider in light of Tebow. I guess. Um, probably not quite as crazy of a media spectacle wherever T-Ball lands, but... St. Lucie. Yeah, the I mean, that? Are, are we still pretty sure of that? I don't think they can hold him back for Pro Club, which is the only other real option. They could theoretically send him to Bingo. Yeah, but or Columbia. Still, yeah. I mean, Columbia is like prime SEC territory, but they're going to want to... They don't control Columbia, right? They're gonna. I mean, they have a good relationship with uh, with Cats and Company there, but they do. They send them to Columbia for like a month and then promote them to PSL if he like hits that's over two hundred. Like, that's the problem, though. It's like you gotta. How much do you want to piss off your like player dev and roving staff by promoting him after a month when he's hitting one eighty? Well, if he's hitting one eighty, you leave him there. I mm. guess. I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> Look, I don't know what their medium-term plans are for Tim Tebow. I got no fucking clue. I mean, so, is this where I, uh, Lakewood Blue Claws 2017? Yeah, it's early May. It's early May. Okay, you've already looked? I looked. It's like late April or early May, yeah. That's May 13th to the 16th. Yeah, I already marked off that weekend. It's a a four-gamer wraparound or Thursday to Sunday, I don't remember. I don't, it doesn't give me day. It doesn't give me days of the week. No. It, yeah, but, it's um, either a Thursday to Sunday or a wraparound. So. We got a shot. It's in play. I, I don't care though. Is the thing? <laughs> like, I'm trying to have a conversation about the Mets system. You keep bringing up Tim Tebow, and I'm look. I'm happy to talk about Tim Tebow in the context of it being a story. But I'm not. Yeah, but we're literally talking about is there any is there anything interesting at these levels? Oh, Tim yeah. Tebow is you know. Yeah. Anyway, we have different definitions yes. of interesting I'm, I'm interested in the sideshow circus part of it i guess sure, the grift, whatever, the grift. You know, um can be fun to some people i guess yeah sure uh but i i you would also have to look at like what the outfields look like at all of those levels we can dig I into will, this in february i'm not doing i, I will confess i have not sketched that out enough i haven't either to... but i do need to refill my drink so this seems like a good time to take a break when we come right. back, we'll talk about things of actual national importance, being the World Series with our good friend Kate Morrison. There are only seven games, or up to seven games, left in the baseball season. We are headed to the World Series, Cleveland against Chicago. And here to counteract Jarrett's upcoming standing for the Chicago Cubs is Kate Morrison of Baseball Perspectives. Kate, how's it going? It's going. It is going. So Jarrett wrote a really long, and I will say really good piece at Baseball Perspectives this morning. I know. Waxing poetic about his good friend, Theo Epstein. <laughs> who is not the general manager of the Chicago this is a Cubs. thing now, is it? I'm surprised I haven't seen the Jed Hoyer spanking it tweet in my feed as much as I thought I, I would. 
I've seen I, it like four times. Really? I've I, literally I, seen it like four times. I saw it so much last night that I muted the Jed Hoyer account. So <laughs> the non-Jed Hoyer, Jed Hoyer account. Yes. Uh, Jed Hoyer so, underscore. Yeah. Taking a step back from all the playoff microscope bullshit, this is actually a really cool World Series. Sure. It's got interesting storylines. It's got interesting young players that baseball could market as stars if they were actually able to do that, but they're not. Javier Baez. Um, <laughs> Javier Baez, Francisco future Lindor. World Series MVP, apparently, even though he's never out-hit Wilmer Flores for a season. Um, it's the two teams that haven't won in the longest. Yep. Well, what are we debating as the longest? It's the when two- was the last time did Cleveland went Cleveland won... Wait, they didn't. They went to one. And when yeah. did they win? Ninety-eight, forty-eight, or ninety-seven. Yeah, I would disagree. Seeing as the Rangers have never won one. Yeah, that so could not the Rangers the haven't been around that long. The Rangers have been around for fifty years. Thank you very much. But the Rangers haven't been around since the last time Cleveland won the World Series, which was in forty-eight. The Rangers oh, forty-eight. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, they won the NL. They won the AL pennant in ninety-five. I thought you said ninety-eight, and I was no, very confused for a minute. I meant 97, which is the last time they've been in the World Series. Yeah, you guys were very confusing. That was the Luis Luis Castillo-Jose Mesa game? Yes. No, Edgar Renteria. Oh, Oh, Edgar Renteria, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cleveland and Chicago have a very long history of being losers. Cleveland... They made a a movie about it for both teams, really. (laughs) They made multiple movies. There's uh, the thirty for thirty believe land. It's I was how just weird be like is major it? league and rookie of the year, but how weird is it that Cleveland, after going so long without having anything, on the same day is going to raise the banner for the Cavaliers and host Game One of the World Series right next door? That's just like they still have the Browns weird. though. So the year that yeah. launched a thousand Joe Posnanski books. Yeah, and poor Paul D. Podesta still doesn't have a quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Browns are still the Browns. There's some things you can't uh, undo. Yes. Not not everything's coming up Cleveland. But, you know, that's, they've certainly, and they're in a position where they could, you know, this seems sustainable for Cleveland. They've got some young stars. Yeah, I mean, their pitching got some was stars hurt, too, so... You know, they've even got some stars that aren't playing, like yeah. Michael Brantley and, um, I guess the pitcher, may, I guess Carlos the uh, pitcher. Carrasco. Yeah, Carlos Carrasco. Thank you for saving me there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess Salazar might pitch in the World Series now. That's the thing. Hey, Kyle Schwarber might play in the World Series. It sure sounds like Kyle Schwarber's playing. Yeah. I mean, they made the 40-man move to get him eligible to play, so... I can't imagine he's not. Giovanni Soto, not that one, is going to be a hell of a footnote someday. Yeah. Theoretically. And I guess they don't... I mean, they could, like, DH Ben Zobrist and keep playing, like, Jason Hayward and Albert Almora in the outfield. Well, I mean, the Mets uh, went through a certain uh, similar thing with Lucas Duda. Sure. Not, I mean, I'm they, just they saying, were able like, to get him, you know, at bats in regular season games, but... They need a DH for at least games one and game two. Sure. Yeah. And Schwarber, and, even compromised, might be better than their other options. Like the straight DH Schwarber, option is probably Tommy Lastella. 
Well, Schwarber, if things so, if things are healed enough, and he's you know, and he's feeling loose enough to swing, you're likely to get. I don't know if you're going to get a better chance of contact, but when you get contact, you're likely to get a better version of contact. The only problem is that if he is at all still compromised, because even DHs have to be able to like move around on the bases. And especially if we're talking about the Cubs and how one of their things that they like to talk about is how, you know, base running, being a base running team. If you have this guy who, you know, I I haven't seen him run. I'm obviously not in Arizona and I haven't watched him in instructs or anything. But with the nature of his injury, it'd be, you know, it would not be unreasonable for him to still be slightly compromised. I mean, and he was never fast to begin with. So for him to be compromised on the base paths, that is a question, but you're, you're, you're kind of trading because you're operating under the assumption that you're going to be at a disadvantage in DH games anyway, because coming from the league where you don't have DH, you don't have the player to be the DH. Like Cleveland will be at a disadvantage in a non DH situation because they will have to play Mike Napoli at first. If they want him in, in there, why not? I actually think there's a shot they're going to play Napoli and left and Santana at first. And bench Crisp instead. Yeah, Napoli has experience in left field as recently I, I, as last I, year. I, I, I'm aware. I watched Mike Napoli in left field from left field. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, heads, I watched Kyle. I mean, so this is the question is, do you, uh, what, what are you giving up to have Schwarber on your bench because you can also have him pinch it if you're in a late inning situation where you have men on base and la 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 you know bat matchup whatever he's probably either taking like Rob Zestrinsky's roster spot or like Chris Coughlin so guys that are probably not getting in the game anyway yeah like your your 12th pitcher or your sixth bench player so I... So I mean, it's not that big of a deal to give him a twenty-five, you know, put him on the twenty-five man roster because, again, as as I think you said, somebody said, lots of people may have said, I don't know. There's been a lot of words that I've read about the Cubs recently um, that if he isn't able to play, then you just injury him off. And yeah, if, if it's the same thing it. as the uh, Toronto did in the ALCS with the uh, second baseman who's named uh, Devin Travis, like if he. Yeah re-aggravates or tweaks, you just remove him from the roster. Yeah, there's no put, there's no functional punishment for that. And you put your fourth lefty back on. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Or you put, you know, Tommy LaStella or Chris Coughlin back on. Whoever gets bumped off. I think it was LaStella in the, in the uh, LCS. But it's just, like, such... It is such a big upgrade if you can upgrade, you know... But the question is, are you upgrading at all? This is a guy with it. This is not a guy who missed a month. This is not a guy who even missed two months. He missed the full season with an injury of the type that meant that he was not able. Like, if you mess up your wrist, you can still go run. You can still stay in baseball shape. He completely fucked over his knee. To be fair, Kyle Schwarber has never been in baseball shape. (laughs) You know what I'm talking yeah. about. But he's only seen pitching since right. like, it, he's only had like, a yeah. week of pitching. It's, it's high variance. I think their lineup it's, is deep enough they can roll the dice yeah. with a. Oh, two absolutely. Games of you Kyle are Schwarber. you are absolutely rolling the dice there. 
And since you have nobody, you know, it'd be one thing if you had, I don't know, like if you had a clone of Mike Napoli that you would be kicking off your roster for Kyle Schwarber. If you have somebody like that, that it makes someone who is already perfect as a DH, it would make no sense to bring in Schwarber off of so little time against live pitching. Because what, is he going to get like two AFL games? They don't play on Sundays. He got one yesterday. They'll get one on Monday, and then that'll be it. Assume he's so. apparently been. They've apparently been running secret sim games with like their higher level instruct pitchers with him. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, claiming. But, but there is a difference between. I mean, you I mean, can the Mets did that with Lucas Duda too. Sure, you can. Yeah, I mean, it's not like that's a big deal. They do that for every. Like you know, your guys when you see when you see during the regular season when you see big leaguers doing minor league rehab, those guys have been facing sim games and those guys have been facing instructs and complex level pitching for, you know, at least a week before they even get out onto your double A roster. So the advantage that Schwarber has is it's two night games, then a day off, then no more than pinch hitting for three games, then a day off, then two more night games. It's not like he's... It's like not facing like, like day game after night game. It's not like he's facing four straight or anything like that. And they'll obviously be careful with him because either they're either he's an asset they'll want to go forward with, or he's an asset they will want to be able to trade high on. And right. so there is no, there's no, there is no such. In this situation, the stakes are both so low and so high that there is no reason to overwork him. This is not like a pitcher coming back on off of injury and it's this is not a Kershaw situation where you question whether or not he overworked himself which that I still say is not the Dodgers that's a Kershaw himself thing if if he overworked himself it was Kershaw ignoring his body rather than anything else because Kershaw has probably the most power of any kind of baseball player like going from you know pow- basically powerless to just like your complex league guys to guys who can pretty much tell the you know I don't know tell a GM to fuck off and Kershaw's at the point in his career where he can tell pretty much anybody to fuck off. I mean, to be fair, Actually, Chris Sale does that on a regular basis. <laughs> sure. Oh well, yeah. I mean, but but Sale still is under that le- has that kind of like level of org control. Where Kershaw especially is coming up on years where he won't be like where he'll have decisions to make where people will be courting him for his services and so you're he especially has that kind of power because well what are you gonna do if Kershaw decides and fuck this I'm taking my opt out I'm not taking my opt out and I'm gonna go pitch for I don't know Texas for 80 million thousand dollars so one we did learn an interesting piece of information about Kershaw in Andrew Friedman's media availability I don't remember whether it was last night or this morning, which was that he's still he's still hurt. Like he was still receiving treatment on his back, and they're planning on coming up with an off-season treatment or surgery plan for him. So he was pitching compromised by the which back. Makes, makes what he did, which makes what he did even more amazing. Because sure. I'm sorry, last night accepted. Like pitchers have off nights. Sometimes you can control, you know, some, sometimes shit just happens and it happens on the worst personal time, worst personal, worst possible time. Uh, pers- okay, hang on. Give me a second. I'm going to take a moment. Okay. Worst possible time. Um, and that's what happened last night. But you look at his previous pitching performance in this game, in, in these series, 
And it's it's really incredible thing that that's a guy who was still pitching compromised. I think there's two indicators that the Dodgers thought that he might be running out of gas. One was how early they lifted him in game two. And the other one was that they didn't bring him back for game five. They opted to give him the two extra days of rest to bring him back for game six. And when he pitched in game six, he looked like a dude that was just out of gas. Like he just hit the wall. He was, he wasn't throwing his curveball because he couldn't get over for strikes. He, his velocity was still there, but the command wasn't. This just was a dude that looked like he was out of gas. It looked which, like he was starting in the seventh inning at a hundred pitches. Yeah, and in, that's inning one. Yeah, and that's you know it, that's what happens. It's it sucks, and it sucks that after conquering the narrative, the narrative is now back. Perhaps even the narrative will never really go away. I, our good friend Andy Martino tweeted out something about like seriously, would you take Bumgarner or Kershaw? Ignoring that Bumgarner just got lit up by this same Chicago team two weeks ago. Yeah, um, and Kershaw's just the better pitcher. Yes. Breaking There's the Chicago no... Cubs offense is pretty good. They won like yeah, you know, five they... games this year. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is that you have to, you do have to sit there and say this Cubs offense is good. It's not like this Cubs offense is a hot or cold Blue Jays offense or a, I don't know, I'm spitballing here, but uh, you know, this is not an offense that is bad or that has a ton of weaknesses. This is an offense that is solid and well put together and likes to hit. I mean, and I saw some narratives last night, like Kershaw just doesn't want the ball or Kershaw just doesn't handle the pressure. This is the guy a week and a half ago that literally hijacked the bullpen to put himself in a game on one day's rest to save his team's season. Baseball columns are no place for people with long memories, Jared. But this is, this is a guy that obviously wants the ball in the biggest spot and doesn't crack under the pressure. He just ran out of gas and it happened. You know, if you look at the Mets starting pitching in the 2015 World Series, and basically the same thing happened. Guys run out of gas this late in the season, especially when they're asked to do things that they're not expect that they're not expected to do on a normal basis. But how can I feel morally superior hurt. to them if I don't write that they're you know choking cowards? I just that that ups, that That's I don't want to say it. Problem, up. Jeff. Hmm. I don't say it upset me, but it was it struck me as weird given like like I wrote I mean, a column you about why that. you wonder why these guys don't like to talk to reporters. And I'm not saying that everything needs to be a tongue bath, like like but there's a line between writing pieces that are overly complimentary and sugary and flowery and writing pieces that are hit pieces. And uh. Like, you can write something, I mean, because I walk this line in doing player evaluation, because as as someone who does player evaluation, you cannot ever under, it is a bad thing to underestimate the level of effort that is being put forth on a baseball field, unless you have direct from a coach or from someone else that so, and even then, like we discussed, I don't know if we discussed it on here or like I ranted about it to somebody else with like with. Nick Williams and the Phillies AAA coach, even then you can't trust what a coach is saying because they may have their own ulterior motives or that they may coach just not, not like been the player. brought back for 2017 either. Yes, that coach was fired. That, that, the Phillies fired the AAA manager. 
They waited, um, they waited the two months so nobody would connect it to Nick Williams and then fired him. But you, which, sorry, Phillies, we just connected it to Nick Williams. Um, I think the Phillies fans have been paying attention already did that, so. Oh, well, it, I mean, but we just did it explicitly on a podcast that tens of people listen to. Tens of Phillies um, fans, certainly. <laughs> uh, so... You can't when when you're sitting there as a player evaluator and you're watching someone, you can oh you can note the level of effort that seems to be that seems to be you know, out there on the field. And as a player evaluator, if you if I didn't know who Clayton Kershaw was, if I didn't know who Clayton Kershaw was, you just stuck some film of a pitcher in front of me and said, "Tell me what you think about this pitcher." I would never say that I thought that pitcher was throwing without effort, because I've seen pitchers that throw without effort. And that is not a pitcher who is not that is not a pitcher who is not caring where his pitches go. That is not a pitcher who is not caring, not trying to do his best with what he has in his arsenal at that moment. Sometimes you just don't have fuck all in your arsenal. Yeah, I mean guys have bad. I mean, I've clear. seen I've seen guys with fuck all in their arsenal who have no drive on a mound. And trust me, it ain't Clayton Kershaw. No, I've you know. There are very few players that I have given even a personal internal ding for effort just based on what I've seen on the baseball field. But when you actually see a guy that's like legitimately yeah, not putting out know. a representative you effort, know, it looks like Jordani right about it. Yeah, there's there's a good one. You, and you still and, and but like unlike what y'all just did, like I personally, you still you catch it in other terms because the the. The Mets went so public with that one. I mean, they they literally at one point put him in a game to get hit to teach him a lesson. <laughs> so, in a major league game. Yeah. Like, they conspired with, I think, was it the Pirates? I think they it They basically was, yeah. conspired with the Pirates to get him thrown at. Like, so that's a really explicit well, one. Well, then. Yeah. I mean, Valdez uh, Ben, like, is in... All my years of watching Mets prospects and prospects in general, and all my years going forward from this day, I don't think I'll ever see a player quite like Jordani Valdespin. No. <laughs> I mean, just everything. Yeah, this... We could do an entire podcast on Jordani Valdespin. Yes. I feel like at this point I've dumped from the, you know, five years of Mets podcasting, I've dumped all my Jordani Valdespin stories, but... I might have one or two. Yeah, too. there should be, could be more out there, certainly. But yeah, I mean, like. But anyway, that, that's it's my really rant about why it's the really, Juan Lagares suit story is out there, isn't it? I don't know if I've ever heard that one. Where he made like Juan Lagares buy him a suit. <laughs> no, I've never heard that. Where he one. got called up. I think it's out there. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, that's my rant on lazy writers who are only seeing their own laziness in a picture. Because like, there's so many other things that you could write about with regard, like there are seriously a million. Even if you're, a, even if you're a Dodgers writer, even if you're a Dodgers writer, there are a million other things this game you could write about. You could still write about Kershaw, but instead of saying, "Oh, he just doesn't have the will to win," which I'm sorry, that's a White Sox thing, right? Um, is oh, that hard, yeah. is TWTW? You could write about how. At the end of a very long season where he was injured and where we found out media availability, he was still injured at the end of it. How no one thought he, he would actually there. even come back. And no one ever back. thought, no, yeah, no one thought he would come back this season. No one thought he would be effective this season. He came back. He was more than effective. He got his team 
to the divi- to the championship series, and that's like that in itself. And you know, if the Dodgers were a complete a tire fire in Dodgers, games four and yeah. five, if the Dodgers <laughs> offense is very different. stuff together, yeah, I mean because he didn't give up that uh, well, he did give up that many runs last night, but he but seven scoreless in game two, seven scoreless in game two, and they lost that game. I was going to say on no, short rest, but I don't, I don't even no, know how you. Game. I don't even I know how you quantify his like rest pattern over the last two weeks. Yeah, yeah, like that thing is like, yeah, he may have felt like he could go, but there is damage to a guy that doesn't show up until later. We like, don't know what damage pitching on one day's rest completely off his rest cycle did. We have no idea. There's no way. No, for we us won't to ever know. know. But yes, it could have been none. It could be a lot. We don't know. We talked a lot about the Cubs and the Dodgers. Apparently, I feel like we should talk a little bit about the Indians. Francisco Lindor. Francisco Lindor Francisco is Lindor. awesome and still somehow underrated. Yes. Francisco Lindor. I. I. So I don't get to watch a lot of Cleveland when I'm doing my normal watching patterns. I just they kind of fall off my radar they're a central team i somehow managed to keep up with a lot but obviously all of the east and some of the all of the west and some of the east but watching cleveland this series watching lindor and then watching this this packed together staff of pitching that is somehow unsustainable and sustainable at the same time it's just kind of ridiculous i mean you have andrew miller who's doing things no pitcher has ever done or at least has ever done in the modern recorded era and you have and this is i'm i'm gonna tease something i'm not gonna go into this because i'm gonna go into it a lot on tuesday for today's knuckleball but uh there is a certain level of the it's not just the way that Francona is using Miller, it's the fact that Miller is allowing himself to be used in that way by Francona. So Andrew Miller in the ALCS pitched seven and two-thirds innings. He only recorded one decision in four games. He got one save and three holds. He struck out 14 dudes and allowed three hits, no walks. That's pretty good. And won the ALCS MVP with only one decision in four games as a reliever. Yeah. That's um, that's I mean, a one. We talked of... about this last week a little bit when I suggested that you know hypothetically if the Mets have unlimited money they should just sign yes. Kenley Jansen and bring him in in this role. But yes. for if you're a reliever, once you get an Andrew Miller type deal, I feel like you're more open to being used. However, and it depends on the individual personality, certainly. Well, we were well. I I, I was talking about this, and we're talking about how Miller has closer money. And, and he's, had an unusual, seemed, he's had an unusual yeah, career track in general. Yeah, he's had a really unusual career. So if you're taking a guy who is a closer and you're trying to to, to do... I mean, and here we're getting close to me, you know, screwing myself out of a column. So um, I think it comes down to how Terry Francona manages so, that team as well, that Cody Allen's okay with being used, but, however... But you here's know, the thing. Miller can Andrew close. Miller, Allen can come in the seventh. Allen can come in in the ninth. The Yankees gave Andrew Miller what at the time was top tier closer money. It was four years, $36 million. How many saves do you guys think Andrew Miller had in his career before he got that contract? It's not a lot. Ten? One. Oh, shit. 
He had one save down the stretch for Baltimore after being traded. He was traded for Eduardo Rodriguez, who was at the time a top like 50, 50 global yeah. prospect, having zero career saves. Well, and part of that's because Miller, like Miller's stock didn't even really rise until Baltimore was in the postseason. I, I mean, he had, you know, and Tom Tippett actually talked about this at Sabre Seminar a bit, but, you know, when they acquired him in 2011, it was as a starter, but with the intention of moving him into the bullpen and junking his third pitches and trying to clean up his command. And he was already, I would say, established as a dominant reliever by probably 2013, and Baltimore trade for him at the deadline at 2014. And essentially since Baltimore got him, he's just been like, he's been striking out like 15 guys per and never walking anybody and never giving up any homers, which, um, that's pretty good. You know, that's, and they traded an awful lot to get him. And they traded two top 100 prospects. You know, two guys that, you know, are, you know, one guy that's in top 25 contention this yep. year and one guy that's in top 50 contention this year, yep. plus two relievers that are probably going to be, you know, useful major league pieces. I was going to say, you know, at the least, you know, middle setup guys and one that has, you know, fire eyes and I think has closer potential. And, you know, they traded that. And Andrew Miller's under contract through 2018, which yep. is not insignificant. And if we made Andrew Miller a free agent after this season, he would probably come close to tripling his $9 million per year. Um, I think somebody would probably pay him, you know, four years at $22 million or whatever. Um, I wonder if we're, like, like, moving into a new era for these kind of relievers where they're going to get... Because you can... The thing is, and as good as Andrew Miller's been, and, and Francona used him this way down the stretch... I don't know if you can really yes. use someone like this for 60 outings and 110 innings a season. Yeah, I, it's happened I in the past, certainly, think, but... I I don't think that... I think that this particular usage of Andrew Miller is unusual and limited to a short... to a, a sample you know will be short. Francona was However, using- Francona's been using Miller in a similar but not exact way through he, the regular season. He was using him for up to two innings stints. He never used him the entire time he had him. He only used him once three days in a row, and it was the last three games of the season. It was for two-thirds of an inning, an inning, and two-thirds of an inning. So it wasn't like whenever he was used in longer stints, he had a day or two off after. Is Terry Francona um, he was the used- best manager in baseball right now? Please I think don't, because so. I'm writing about that. All right, sorry. Well, we can, t- we can talk about it, but I think he is, yeah. <laughs> you look at the body of success. You know, I mean, oh, that yeah, team no. is that team is. In I mean, the I, I guess I guess I can talk about this because right I'm writing what what I'm writing about is I'm writing about squishy managerial factors, which is what you're seeing. You you see a lot of with Matt with these two managers in this World Series. You're going to see a lot of talk about managerial factors, and I think we both know. I, I I don't think we've gotten to the point where we can quantify what a manager actually does because you have the people on one side who are saying, oh, well, managers do nothing. If you break it down, certain guys win a certain amount of time with whatever, certain guys lose. I mean, all managers are basically a formless blob that just kind of moves from team to team. I think that there is in that kind of un- – because you 
you look at the Rangers and you look at stuff like that, you look at teams that outperform or underperform, and you can say that there is some kind of something that's going on in there, and that's the squishy managerial factor. But specifically talking about Francona and Madden, I think that Francona has been, like, you look at how long he has had success with teams, and yeah, you have people, oh, well, he only has success with good teams. But at some point, chicken and chicken egg thing. Yeah, it's like, okay, well, you put together these guys, you add up the wars, but adding up the wars doesn't actually work, and it never has, and it never will. So like, Joe, Mad- Joe Madden has been a major league manager for 16 seasons now. His first four seasons, he was with that bad, like, turn-of-the-century Phillies team, awful, whatever. But he had a good enough reputation coming out of that to get hired by the Red Sox. Since being hired with- by the Red Sox, he has had— Joe Madden, you're talking about Terry Francona. Oh, Terry Francona, excuse me. Um, Terry Francona has managed 12 seasons. He ha- His teams have never had a losing record. The only team that was worse than 85 wins was last year's Indians, which just got murdered by injuries. And in the postseason, he is 35-19 and 19 with two World Series and three pennants. Is that I, good? He's going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he is. You know, he's going to be considered, you know, one of the 10 greatest managers in baseball history. And it's like, I know you'll see this, this sort of line of thinking with a lot of ex-players where they, where you can't look at the locker room as like an office job. But there are good managers and there are bad managers. I've had, you know, in my current office job, I've had probably like seven managers in eight years at this point. There are good managers and there are bad managers. There are managers I've worked harder for. There are managers I've worked different for. It does matter. And Francona's done it in a, a bunch of different stops at this point with very different teams. There was a story that came out of the Trevor Bauer disaster game um, where that the yanked Trevor Bauer in the first inning. And reporters asked Francona after the game because he was visibly laughing on the mound while all of this was happening. And it turned out he was having a conversation about Mike Napoli, about whether they should like get a clubhouse guy to get in on the 50-50 jackpot in Toronto. <laughs> Which is how you you have that conversation with your veteran leader, Mike Napoli, and it stops the rest of the team panicking, like, holy shit, we've got to pull our starting pitchers I mean, pitchers this is, this is literally Joe Montana inning. going into the huddle in, in the Super yeah. Bowl against Cincinnati and to drive the length of the field and being and saying, you know, is that, oh, is that John Candy in the stands? Yeah, like, this is how you stop your young infield from panicking that, oh, my God, the starter's out in the first inning. You know what? They won that game. So they, they still should have gotten the clubhouse guy in on the 50-50. Yeah, sure. They get a ton of money. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, every time I'm in like, uh, is it Lakewood that does like the ridiculous 50, 50 every year? Uh, no, it's, uh, high Valley, high Valley. Valley. We were there for, I'm like, like the first day we were there, like a 50, 50 was like 800 bucks. And I'm like, why am I not in this? I got a press pass. I can't do this. Can I? Yeah. Um, yeah, they they started doing that at every sporting event in Texas, basically. And I'm a bit of a degenerate gambler. I've already like planned out my. New Year's Day trip to <laughs> Sun, so. And no, I'm not the only degenerate gambler on this podcast, by the way. No, you're not. Well, ex-degenerate gambler. Ex-degenerate gambler, sure. 
But, you know, you hear an outside of the hatchet job that Larry Lucchino did on um, on the way out in Boston, you just don't hear bad things about Tito Francona. You just don't hear bad things about him. Um, you don't hear bad stuff coming out of his clubhouses, again, outside of the 2011 Red Sox. Fried chicken and beer. Uh, yes, which got every... I mean, that was... Let's talk about the Red Sox. The Red Sox ran Terry Francona and Theo Epstein out of town because of that 2011 season. Yeah. Oops. Oops. Yeah. And not that they're in a bad place organizationally. They won a World Series since then. They've got, you know, I think Dave Dombrowski is pretty well regarded. I think he's somebody that we hold in pretty decent esteem, too. But, you know, we're talking about Terry Francona and Theo Epstein as future Hall of Famers. And they ran... Both of those guys out of town coming off a string of incredible success over a seven, eight-year period. And that's just going to be a weird historical footnote to the series, too. I, you know, I, yeah, I think Terry Francona is the best manager in baseball. And I don't know where to rank Joe Madden. I think he's probably overall above average as a tactician. I think he's probably average to above and, you do have to give some weight to all the wonderful things people say about him in the clubhouse, but do I think there's a chance that the Indians win the series because Francona outmaneuvers Madden? Yeah, there's probably a chance. All right, we'll put everyone on the spot here for their World Series predictions because that's a thing you do, <laughs> I guess, for entertainment purposes only or whatever. So Kate Morrison... What team and Cleveland in how in, many games? Cleveland in seven. Jarrett? I mean, the joke answer is to say Cubs in four, right? <laughs> I, mean, I was going to say Cubs in five to make it a Mountain Ghost reference, so. Um, Indians in six. Cubs in six. Hey, so we're at least guaranteed six games of baseball. It'll be nice. Yeah, I I think there's a pretty good. I think it's going to be a tight series. I'm getting my Dominican Winter League stream soon, so I've got that going for me too. Oh, Joey Gallo is going to be playing in the, in the Venezuela Winter League. He could That's do some interesting stuff. Yeah. I know he's not there yet. I'm though. a little surprised. Like they teams well are letting teams major are letting league still want to go down to the Venezuela, Venezuela to play in the Winter League. Yeah. I think some of it is that there are there are other Rangers that are going to go play in the VZL. Um, I mean, it's not my number VWL. one choice for a winter vacation spot right now, but no, it's I, not. So the reason I'm taking Cleveland is because I think Francona is going to manage to keep the game close through aggressive pitcher usage, and I'm not sure Madden will take the same. I don't know if you or, call them or risks. can take the same. Right. Or yes. can take the same. Yes, like there's a big, you know, not sure. Madden like, needs like, six inning out of his six innings out of his starter more than Francona does. Yes, I mean he can just go to Andrew Miller whenever. It's gonna be interesting to see if he's as aggressive with his usage of Miller in NL parks because that does add a little twist to it. That does add the twist to it is, I mean, none of his pitchers can hit. I mean, Miller was a starter though. But I don't know. He was in it. Oh, he wasn't. Was he in it? He started starter? for the Marlins a little bit. Yeah, he was. So, the, he was the centerpiece of the Miguel Cabrera trade to, to, to oh, Detroit. Oh, Lord, I'd forgotten about that. No, that, that. was Cameron Maven. No, it was no, Miller. It and was Maven. Andrew Miller. It was Miller. It was and Miller Maven. and Maven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
because we went over this last year, and it was like, wait, Andrew Miller is how old? Andrew so, Miller was considered the top prospect in that draft as a college pitcher and only yeah. fell because he wanted a gazillion dollars as a Boris client, which the Tigers gave him as they were wont to do in the old system with Boris clients. Yeah. Also, Rick, Rick Porcello. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Max Scherzer. Yeah. Yeah. But no, he's he's a guy that's got... There's like a really interesting, I think, long form Andrew Miller, how he got here article, like, you know, the ones that have been written about like Jake Arrieta. Um, I, I specifically somebody remember. Wants to, somebody about. wants to pay me to write that. I will write that for you. Yeah. I mean, he took a really weird path to where he got. Um, I Kurt Sam and Ben on one of the recent podcasts were talking about. Um, whether you would think as like if you're the Indians next spring, do you think about converting Miller back to a starter? No, I don't think so either. But it would be tempting because he's doing it, you know, over longer periods where you think he. But there is a di- there is a, there's just a difference between starting a game and needing to because because with Miller. He's still not going five innings. He's going three innings, sure, but he's yeah. not going five innings. And it is that mental difference between needing to start a game and knowing that you have to pace yourself over X pitches to try to make X, X pitches go as long as possible. He also Whereas, has he has a ton of effort in his delivery too. Yeah, Miller has a ton of effort in his delivery. He's now a two pitch guy. Is it yeah. two or three? No, he's, he's fastball he's, slider. Yeah, he's fastball slider. And fastball slider guys just aren't as good as starters, even if they have really good sliders. Yeah. Um, and, yes, he's being asked to go three innings, but it's never – I'm sure that if he went up for two and then he came back and said, I'm, I can't do another inning, that they would get somebody else hot in the pen. And they've like, been – I mean, they could have run him out there for – um, it would have been a fourth inning, but it would have been up to three and a third in game five. And they turned over Cody Allen instead. I think Miller had only thrown like 25 pitches to get through like his two and a third. And they were just like, nope, we're bringing Allen. So he's been, for all, for as aggressive as Francona has been with his Andrew Miller usage, he also really hasn't, he's yet to be pushed past the point where he was still looking like Andrew Miller, destroyer of worlds. Which is an incredibly delicate balance. And yes. This is sometimes the advantage of having a guy that's been managing 16 major league seasons, too. He's, Terry Francona's been around a really long time and understands this kind of stuff, whereas perhaps the guy that you hired out of somebody's television booth doesn't. Kate, we'll let you go on this. What uh-huh. the heck happened to Everton yesterday against Burnley? <laughs> I really hope you weren't listening to this podcast very loudly at work. I mean, I'm feeling know. good. My team got seven points in six days. So. Oh, shut up. Uh, apparently, new manager can't change the fact that Everton play down to their opponents. It does seem that way. And I like Kuman too. Oh, I mean, I like Kevin, but... Nah. Kate Sorry, Morrison, buddy. You can for... read her at Baseball Perspective today. <laughs> knuckleball and everywhere else. And follow her at Unlikely Fanatic. Thanks for coming on.
Welcome back. It's time for the third half of the show. Before we do the third half of the show, we do housekeeping. This is, for all you kids out there, episode 25. For all you kids out there, is the official podcast of your Baseball Prospectus Mets local site. You can find us on the internet at baseballprospectus.com and mets.local.baseballprospectus.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for For All You Kids Out There, and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. If you want to get in contact with the show, we're on Twitter at For All You Kids. Jarrett is on Twitter at Number One Cubs Fan, actually at J.A. Seidler. You can find <laughs> me on Twitter. How long are you going to do this to me? Eh, it's a week or two. Okay. Trust me, I could have made wor- may- way more worse jokes than i have on this show oh i'm sure you could have i'm on twitter at jeff paternostro we're also on facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash for all you kids out there and we are starting to get a lot of activity in there if you, you said this last week group. it's still yes. mostly true it's you know we're up to about 100 members we're starting to get like the ben and sam facebook group thing going where uh, we're actually yeah, having like it. continuing conversations and stuff like yeah. that and you can email the show at allyoukids at baseballperspectus.com. We have a couple emails. Our first one is from our good friend Brady. Hi, Brady. Is it time to raise the minimum salary and how much should it be raised? Well, this is appropriate sure. since the CBA is up this year and may have already been agreed upon, if not officially announced. But for this kind of conversation, there's a lot of money in baseball, Jarrett. A lot of money in baseball. How do you want to distribute that money? Who is the most underpaid? It's probably not like your zero to three guys. No, it's actually the guys in A-ball and double-A and triple-A. I mean, you could even argue your top-end free agents aren't getting as much money as they should. Sure, but it's kind of really hard to... Yeah, it is kind of hard. Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like... Jason Hayward didn't get paid enough. Yeah, I mean, yeah... But yeah, your IFA and your draft guys are underpaid relative to actual market value. And just look at the difference the guys, between a, a, a 20-year-old Cuban and a 23-year-old Cuban and what they get. But the guys that are Or TJ Friedel is another one. Pitch, actually, um, the TV show on Fox that I'm reviewing with Meg on BP. Managed to work that plug in. Yeah, good job. Um, they, they had a situation which was similar to the Al Diaz thing um, where... A Cuban free agent was thought to be 22 and then was like, nah, I'm really older and I'm not subject to the draft pools. Yeah. Um, and that was actually a plot of the show that allowed the Padres to sign to him. Um, so I mean, the pot, if you raise Padres the minimum aren't. salary to, it's like 550 right now? Uh, I think it's... 565 yeah, or something like that? Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the exact... It's between 550 and six. You're raising it to like 750. I mean, for that same expenditure for the population of players that are really zero to one, though every team has oh, a different. It was 5075. Really, it's that low. Yeah, I thought it was. I, I thought, thought it was higher too. But I'll, I'll still stay if you're going to raise it to 750 or whatever. For the same expenditure, you could probably pay a living wage every single minor leaguer in baseball. Yes. I mean, getting the ethics of how to distribute that money and union representation versus non-union representation and how that factors all into it and Um, i think generally i'm sympathetic to the idea that players should get a larger share of revenue than they do as it is sure and that stuff like uh advanced media and whatnot should count as part of that pool 
But I don't know how you, specifically within the player pool for whatever money gets distributed to them, I don't know what the best way to distribute that is. I I really think we need to worry a lot about the underpaid minor leaguer. You know, I agree. The, you know, Seth Lugo having to sit. Um, you know, Seth Lugo having to stay with like his agent's like mother in Las Vegas. You know, Paul Seawall living with his parents yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and the guys that aren't lucky enough to get like a good host family and stuff right. like that. You know, the guys that play in towns where there aren't good host families. Yeah. And certainly some organizations are better than that at others than others. You know, yeah, some organizations have started to focus on minor league nutrition instead of, you know, putting out a bag of bread and peanut butter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's. I mean, you're just but, never you know, going to convince ownership that they shouldn't legislate as much cost savings for themselves as possible, though. Sure, this is something that we talked about on our podcast with uh, Russell Carlton a few months ago. Um, that this is, there is a spot for a major league team to invest $15 million a year in its minor league infrastructure and make it world class. And it seems likely that they would get more than $15 million in value back. But Surplus war, whatever you want to... Uh hard sell to an owner that has to outlay that $15 million right? and is instead... They're more willing to spend that on Andrew Miller than they are on a hundred... Well, more than that, you know, 150 guys in the minors, basically. Yeah, or I was... Yeah, I wasn't going to use Andrew Miller, because Andrew Miller is the star. I was going to say, I was going to say Jay Bruce. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, is it a better use of the whatever limited Will Pond's funds there are to pick up the Jay Bruce option, or is it to keep the St. Lucie facility open year round with ESL classes and individualized instruction and, you know, nutrition and workout stuff. You know, a lot of these, a lot of these guys can't because of their age or their relative level of ability, they're not going to go to the Dominican winter league and play from November to January. So why not keep the complex open to them with a couple of coaches to work on baseball stuff? I mean, obviously you need time off. And there's the, the Mets, the Mets, even more than some other teams actually do do this kind of yes. stuff. So it, I, I don't want it to seem like we're criticizing the Mets. The Mets are actually one of the better teams right. at this I mean, particular just, aspect. We just know more about what they do and they're the general topic of this podcast. But. Yeah, I mean, and they've, you know, there's been some stuff about the borrowers stuff, but yeah. the fact that the Mets have that as an existing thing is puts them way ahead of the pack. But to bring it back to Wilmer Becerra for a minute, as an example, a guy that probably can't play in the Venezuelan Winter League this year, depending on how his recovery from shoulder surgery goes, to be able to give him individualized attention, like a full major league or professional quality rehab in the complex with maybe some simulated game action and stuff like that, that might have real value going into the 2017 season. It might, and I'm going to even go a step further in that Wilmer Becerra is making 10 times as much by playing in the Venezuelan Winter League than yes. he is on his minor league salary. Now, Wilmer Becerra got, what was it, like $1.5 million? Got, so like, Wilmer more Be- than that, I think, but yeah. Yeah, so he, I don't know his specific financial situation, but he might not, like, actually super need the money. Um, but... You know, that, you know, that could Guillaume, be a big financial Another thing. guy we've talked about a little bit on this show, he works in a batting cage in the offseason. Yeah. To make extra money. 
And he yeah. got, you know, he got 150 or something as a 10th round pick, but that goes that's fast. Not, yeah, that's... That was four years ago at this point. Yeah, and he's probably making 15000 a season in A-ball. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. That might actually be a high number. Let's see what he's... Yeah, no, that is a high number because he's probably making about 1500 a month and only getting paid during the season. So he's probably making 9000 Yep. Um, that, you know... It's not hard. I don't remember whether we talked about this on the podcast, but like if you run the calculations on how much it would take to pay everybody in the minors up to the exempt portion of the minimum wage, it's a pretty small. Like it's tens of millions of dollars, but right. it's that's tens of millions of dollars is not a lot in the annual budget of Major League Baseball or a major league baseball team at this point. And this is the same organization that shut down their GCL team for a year to save 750k or whatever. You know, it's not it's not that much money to pay every minor leaguer 50 grand. It's just it is not. Isn't. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, you can do the math. It's 50 grand. How many minor leaguers are they employing? Probably 175 at any given time. Something that, like that, yeah. Yeah, so let's let's 50 times 175 it would cost the Mets to pay everybody in the system a living wage 8.7 million dollars a year give or take it's not a lot of money that's that's slightly above Alejandro Diaz money they're going to pay more to Addison Reed to be a setup man next year and who knows how many Addison Reeds you can get if you keep these guys around exactly our next email is from Tom there's a sarcastic editorial note in Jarrett's Neil Walker article about the diagnostic diagnostic abilities of the Mets medical staff. I, Jarrett, sarcastic? I'm shocked. How much yeah. of an outlier in the Mets training slash medical staff? How much of an outlier is the Mets training slash medical staff in reality? There's obviously a documented pattern of understating recovery times. But are these issues unique to the Mets? Or is this an every fan base hates its manager thing? Have you gotten any sense during conversation with baseball people whether this is a thing that people in other organizations recognize as specifically a Mets issue? Yes. <laughs> so specifically, the fact that Mets underestimate injury times is something that is talked about within baseball, the yes. baseball community. That Even is because that is something that most Mets teams specifically people who are not going to out, but <laughs> yes, that is something that other teams specifically go out of the way not to do because it doesn't you know if you do that it can cause the player to rush back it can cause the fan base to turn on the player etc etc and if so Um, is it something that lies with ray ramirez in parentheses boo and the training staff hospital for special surgery or team positions a general toughen up and play through it mentality organization wide ding 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 a willingness to take on injury prone players something else any studies you're aware of on the recovery time for certain injuries broken down by team or number of injuries suffered by certain teams that may provide some insight and the closest i can come to this is like stuff that will carroll was doing a decade ago that i don't know if was statistically rigorous it does feel like there's been a pattern over the past five years or more but it's bizarre that it's if it's more than just confirmation bias the team either doesn't appear to recognize it or just chooses not to address it so the Mets so. <laughs> usually do um, rank towards the top of the league and like days lost to the DL and that yes. kind of stuff. Um, and let's be honest, there's an organizational-wide attitude towards just rub some dirt on it. And I think we've alluded to it before on the show. 
sure. It's not, I don't think it's a giant secret that the Mets, you know, and this is something that the analytics people that are more focused on health sometimes talk about, that the Mets are not very focused on injury prevention. Um, that they tend to be more focused on the um, fixing injuries after they happen and less on prevention. Um, this is a complaint that is made about their pitching development, which is that they burn guys out. We've talked about that in the past, too. The I mean, whole idea. Go back and look at how many Tommy John surgeries they've had in the last four years in the minors, not even looking at the high-end yes. major league arms that have had injuries. Yes. Um, it's, you know, it, it, this is, you know, we were talking about the squishy stuff and managers with Kate. This is another thing that's squishy, but by reputation within the industry, by the limited things that we have, yeah, the Mets aren't considered great at this. No. We also have some Facebook questions, which at the time I thought we were going to need because I didn't think there was much to talk about, but somehow we're still going to put together a two hour show. Because that's what amazing we how that happens. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so Matt Davis responded to my episode title, which is a reference to our late lamented Shortstop Avenue audio theme, <laughs> with a question about Francisco Lindor, which is the bidding no longer starts at Thor? Question mark. Uh, no, it still starts at Thor. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's it's one of those trades that never happens, but. Because both teams say no, essentially. Yeah, I mean, this is like the old uh, Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams trade where the two GMs got drunk and then both woke up in the morning and said, nope, we're not doing it. Yeah, I don't, uh, I think it's probably weirdly fair. I think as a fairly reasonable Mets fan, I make that trade just because of the position yeah, player versus I, pitcher I issue take, i would take one door and right. i don't think it's that close either and we know more about syndicard than we do about lindor i think as mets fans and obviously there's even further asymmetry of knowledge within the respective front offices here so they would have a bet like but if you're scared off by noah syndicard's elbow as a mets fan which maybe you should be francisco lindor is a nice secure get and look here's my thing about lindor if you had to bet on a player other than Mike Trout and Bryce Harper, who have both already done it, to have a 10-win season in the next five years, I might take Lindor. I mean, we get into what's a 10-win season. Sure, but I think whatever, and you already sort of alluded to this, might be at issue with the scale of defensive metrics, Francisco Lindor is the best defensive shortstop in baseball for whatever that means in terms of run values. Like, I mean, so if we took... And you could have like a 350-20 home run season in there as the best defensive shortstop in baseball. You know, if we were using BP Warp, I would suggest that the most likely is probably Buster Posey. Sure. Because Buster Posey tends to put up, you know, 30 run above average seasons by our defensive metrics, which means he only needs to be seven wins above offensive replacement, which I am not checking offhand, but I'm guessing he's probably at least come close a couple of times. I feel like he's got an eight or a nine win season in there already. I'm I'm pretty sure he does. Um, But yeah, I mean, Lindor, you know, Lindor is also a guy that's capable of putting up a 30 run 
defensive season based on the defensive metrics that are out there now. Um, I'm not sure if he actually has an FRAA, but um, and he's probably capable of coming close to that offense. Yeah, I mean, it's... I think yeah, I we mean, both... We discussed this, I think, on a recent show. We both think the hit tool is completely legit from what he's shown yes. at this point. So he put up by warp 6.2 warp. Um, we had him at 19.4 runs above average defensively. And that's like heavily regressed and not zone-based. Yes, and 40.4 runs above average... Above, runs above replacement offensively. Because that's really good old warp. Yes. Um, so that's with a 270 you know, total average. Right, he which is above average, but play. not like special or anything. Yes, he had a... He hit... 300 but didn't do like a ton else like he had 48 extra base hits which is fine but not particularly extraordinary and he walked a little bit he walked about eight percent of the time which is also fine but not extraordinary but weirdly this feels like kind of I, i don't think this is the worst season he'll ever have or his floor per se but it seems like the floor is very high Yes, yeah, so there there can definitely be offensive growth past yeah. there. Like Noah Syndergaard could just miss a year. Sure. And um, you know, maybe I'm not gonna say is more likely than not to miss a year in the next five, but yeah, there's a decent it's chance. Tough. It's 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 on the board in Vegas. Yeah. Um, and none of this is to malign Noah Syndergaard, who could also, as we've no, suggested I, before, turn to the right-handed Clayton Kershaw. I, I don't think adjusting for contract status, age, and health, there is a pitcher in baseball you'd take over Syndergaard right now. Sure. Um, Kershaw, but, you know, health and contract status would be an issue there. But, you know, if you, Syndergaard's probably the most valuable pitching property in baseball. Would you agree with that? Sure, but by that same token, you could probably find 15 position players. I don't know if I'd go that deep. Yeah. Uh, I was I was thinking I was thinking a number around six or seven. Okay, because depending like on not, how you depending on how you want to. Yeah, I mean, I'm like doing this like the Jack Cameron trade risk. value sure. rankings too. Like you would not actually trade. You would trade Noah Syndergaard's rest of career for Bryce Harper's rest of career. You would not trade Noah Syndergaard's current contract status for Bryce Harper's current contract status. Yeah. So you can get into depend depends on like how you do it. Um, but yeah, I, it's a tough, it's, you know, it's interesting because they both have the same service time pretty much. Yeah. I mean, if you're um, making a trade value list, not well, that I advocate doing that anything more than semi-seriously, um, they'd be pretty close, I think. Well, let's look at, see what, uh, Mr. Cameron said on fan graphs. Um, do, 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 do. he had Francisco Lindor number five and Noah Syndergaard number twelve. He actually did have Syndergaard behind Harper, which I he had Syndergaard behind Harper and Machado, both of whom are only signed through twenty eighteen. Yeah. Now that was also at mid season July, so sure. I'm guessing Syndergaard probably hops those two guys. So eh, I don't think when. I don't know if Lindor hops anyone. The guys ahead of Lindor were Trout, Correa, Bryant, and Seager. Uh, yeah. I could probably get him over Seager and Bryant, but I really value that glove. 
But, yeah. Brian, Brian's tough. No, I know. I actually think that I actually would probably have the easiest time jumping him over Correa. Oh yeah, I, for some reason I blanked yeah. over that. I think Lindor is better than Correa now. I thought Lindor should have won the Rookie of the Year last year. So yeah, I, I, am, I as, as, as I would well probably known, as go, much of a uh, Cubs stand as you are. I'm even more of a Francisco Lindor stand. So. I would probably go Trout, Seager, mm, Trout, Bryant, Seager, Lindor, Correa. Okay. If we're if we're doing this, um, Anthony Rizzo is in the conversation too, just because of the contract. He's I under guess. control. He's, he's, under, he's under. He's got five more years of control. Is Rizzo uh, that much better contract included than Freddie Freeman? Um, according to Dave, he is by at least fifty spots because Freddie Freeman wasn't on this list. That was also before. Freeman had a huge second half too. So this is true, but he makes a lot more money. Than, yeah, uh, I mean, I guess Rizzo. I almost feel like Rizzo has become underrated just by. You know, it, it's crazy to say, but he's... Well, been, I mean, when you're next to future MVP, Javier Baez, it's tough to get attention. You know, he's basically Xerox the last three years, like a 285, 385, 530 season. That's pretty goddamn good. That is pretty goddamn good. You know, and he's 27, so... Uh, also you know, pretty that's... goddamn good is Paul Goldschmidt and Christian De Palma. Wants us, uh, I think, bouncing off last... Week's conversation, he just asked we could get Paul Goldschmidt for dot, dot, dot. Oh, so Paul Goldschmidt was also really high on this uh, trade value list here. Paul Goldschmidt was number nine. So according to this, you could get Paul Goldschmidt for like Noah Syndergaard plus. Sure. I don't think in reality you actually need to do that. I think you can probably get him for Ahmed Rosario plus. Right. Um, You might need Gazelman there as the second piece. Yeah. Uh, Maybe Fordo. Maybe Conforto, yeah. I could see the the new Arizona regime really loving Conforto. You know, Goldschmidt's got a sense I'm including his option because if you're trading for him, you're picking up his option unless he, like, breaks his leg or something. It's like 335 or something? It's 334, basically. Yeah, that's obscene. That's obscenely good. And I know we we said, like, he's good and cheap, but let's be clear. Uh, his career line is 299, 398, 525. You can just call that 345. It's a 345 line. There aren't that many of those guys yes. out there. He's an excellent defender at first. He had a down he year last bases. year. He had a down year it's like last 880 year. like 880 OPS. 899. Yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah. When he led the league and walked, so there may have been some, you know, pitching around there, sure. too. It is like a, I mean, this is a Chris Dale, Bumgarner level deal, but he's a position player, so that's what And there's only there's a more three years there. left, so... You might be able to get away with, like, Ahmed Rosario++. plus plus. Yeah, I, I mean, so you suggested last week they might be going into a soft tank. And yes. I think their farm system right now is worse than when the Braves started to tank. Although I don't know how much worse, because I went back and looked at the 2014 Braves prospect list, and it's got, uh, it was Lucas Sims, Bethancourt, and Mauricio Cabrera at the top, and J.R. Graham at four. Stripes. Yeah. Tommy LaStella was in at six. So this is, you know... I mean, the difference is, at the time, the Braves had graduated, like, their last good class of prospects and signed them all to team-friendly deals. The Diamondbacks don't have that kind of young, locked-up talent. So they have, you know, less, they have less to deal in the first place, and also less incentive than I think the Braves had at that point to push for it now, because I always said the Braves' 
tank is a little bit odd. Okay, so what's what Mike Hazen calls you up. You're Sandy Alderson. Mm-hmm. He says, "I'll give you Goldschmidt for Rosario, Zapucky, and Dominic Smith." Are oh, yeah. you accepting on the spot? On the spot, yeah. All right, okay. the way I sort of charted it out in my head was Rosario Gazelman, one of the Smith, uh, Lindsay Dunn group, and then one of the Becerra Carpio Sanchez group. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're all kind of in the same territory. It's so you've probably... got two top 100 guys, a borderline top 100 guy, and an interesting, frisky dude. That's the type of trade that gets made here. Yeah. And I, I think. think I do that. It limits your, yeah, I guess I think it I limits your shortstop options, but you have two more years of Ezra Cabrera, and I don't know, maybe Louis Jorme hits enough. I mean, does it would... really matter when you can roll out Goldschmidt in the middle of that lineup between, like, Cespedes and Granderson? I would try to avoid trading Gazelman, and I think if we're operating in a world where the Diamondbacks are trading Goldschmidt, they might have less interest in Gazelman than, say, Zapucky or Don. Sure. Um, Gazelman's a hard guy to measure trade value. He was a, he's a hard guy for us to rank. Yep. So they might have more interest in a more well-regarded for longer prospect than a pop-up prospect that's already in the majors. Not because Zellman was like a total pop-up prospect, but right. it's not in top 100 consideration last year. It I think a lot of this comes this down year. to it depends on what you think of Rosario, and that sure. goes both ways because elite prospects don't really get traded anymore. And I think at this point, even though I think prospects as a group are down, or at least sort of the you know, the national top 50 or whatever is a little thinner than it has been in the past. You know, elite guys just don't get traded, and he's a top 10 prospect probably. I mean, the most And there, recent... are, people, there are people within baseball yep. that think he's even better than but that. He could you be Francisco find... Lindor. Yeah, you can... Nah, he's not that good of a defender. I know, but he could turn to that kind of value. I think if we're playing that game, he could be Carlos Correa is okay, a better... that's fine. <laughs> yeah comp um i yeah i mean you can talk to people within the game that just think this guy is an absolute surefire stud right i wouldn't be shocked if he ends up in like somebody's global top like two or three uh i I don't know that for sure i don't think he's gonna be in ours but i don't know that for sure either yeah it's tough to get him there with just the amount of partial, guys that didn't quite, yeah. quite graduate. Given, but you can find people that like Rosario more than Dansby Swanson. You sure, can find Swanson's like, like the one example of an elite prospect that was actually traded recently. But that was right. a weird deal, of course. You can find people that like Rosario more than J.P. Crawford. I've actually heard from a bunch of people yep. that like Rosario more than J.P. Crawford now. Uh, so it's not like it's not like there's like a group of maybe eight to ten guys that could all kind of be shuffled in a particular way and rosario's in that group yes um you know it depends on where you think about because there's this weird thing where you essentially have three guys out of that group or established quality major leaguers in swanson reyes and benintendi they're all prospect eligible still and it's just like weird i think it's a weird spot for the mets too because as good as rosario is you're really looking at he may be up at some point next year. We were looking looking at probably 2018 for him to be a regular. And 
you know, so, he might not be good right away. So maybe now you're looking at 2019 and now, you know, now you're Granderson's off the books, that. Harvey's off the books. Yeah. You don't guys, know what your pitching looks like. Yeah. You don't have a lot of other prospects that are aiming in that time frame. Most of the rest of the real high upside prospects are three or four years away. Um, you know, Zapaki, Lindsay. It does get a little tricky. Yeah. Um, the Mets do have a surplus of guys that it's not clear. Like, like they have to do something with Brandon Nimmo next year. And sending him back down to a league where he almost won the batting title and like clearly has nothing to learn is probably not a particularly useful thing to do with Brandon Nimmo. That's how you turn a prospect into not a prospect pretty quickly is if you keep sending them down and don't give them chances to play. It almost feels like he gets dealt for a seventh inning guy this offseason. That feels like not that doesn't feel like enough for him. Eh. And they're kinda in the same spot with Conforto. Sure. I mean Conforto you can at least send down and say he's never really I don't know. I mean he hit triple A pretty hard when he was down. Yeah, like the Conforto <laughs> thing is a mess. You want to talk about Conforto for a minute or two? Haven't we enough? We haven't like, really talked about what to do with him in 2017 yet. I think have we, we have. I don't. I, just picking up that Jay Bruce option means Conforto starts in AAA, right? Yes, that's about the long and the short of it and all the time. I think we need to spend on it until something happens on that front. That's just a bad fucking idea. Maybe they'll non-tender Duda and give him a first baseman's glove, because they have been talking about we, that, we, too. We've talked about it before on the yeah, show. Yeah, we have talked about that, yes, too. Yes, this has all come up. Yes, this has all come up. So instead, we will move on to the pro wrestling portion of the show, because you want to talk about Goldberg again. I do want to talk about Goldberg. Man, that that was a good segment. I will it? say I watched it, too. I, mean, I don't watch Raw, because fuck that. But I did watch the segment on YouTube the next morning at work and it's it was very effective so i had somebody basically notify me when goldberg was going sure. to be on because i was also not watching raw and whatever i think that was during a base one of the baseball games and i think the baseball game may have like ended right before goldberg came on yeah um i don't know if it was you or our good friend tom holzerman or somebody else on sort of the nebulous wrestling slash baseball twitter but yeah. basically pointed out that it was a very different babyface promo because like all the wwe babyface promos even when not that was said by Dave john made. okay uh, when not said by john cena were scripted as if they were supposed to be coming out of john cena's mouth yeah so like the one other piece of raw i saw this week because i did turn it on at the very beginning thinking goldberg might be the first segment uh Seth Rollins was calling Chris Jericho sparkle crotch, which is an example of this kind of terrible verbiage that is like just John Cena-esque. And this has been a big problem with Roman Reigns, too. They've given him like these horrible puns and like Cena gets away with this because of his delivery. But your other baby faces, when they do that, just look like total geeks. And Cena always kind of been a bit of a goof anyway as even as like a top serious baby face right and he gets away with it and he's also capable of putting that stuff away and cutting a serious john cena promo when it's time for business and the rock was kind of the same way 
but they just script everybody like this. So apparently Goldberg was unscripted. He was basically told just go out and do whatever the hell you want. Um, it's which... funny. It actually worked. Goldberg in his day was not considered a particularly good promo either. He was usually cut short, like, you know, I don't want to say uninteresting, but, you know, he would cut like a short promo with like two or three of his catchphrases. He was not a guy that stood there and talked for 15 minutes as he did in this segment. He did have sort of the accumulated downhill momentum of nostalgia going for him throughout it too sure and i mean the entire presentation of this was pretty close to you know they used his wcw music instead of his crappy wwe like knockoff version of that which they did use at the end but like for his entrance they used the wcw music and they had all the younger wrestlers who many of whom goldberg was their hero like surrounding like his entrance and they had him go through the entire backstage just like he used to and they had him stand in the fire and start out the smoke so it was like this was like gold it was an authentic presentation yes. of goldberg from 1998 and and it stands out nowadays as something new and different because a lot of Gold- their presentation is very cookie cutter at this point as we sort of pointed out with the babyface promos right and goldberg Partially because he keeps himself in great shape, but partially because his look is kind of like he had a bald head when he was, you know, he shaved his head when he was 30. Yeah. Um, Goldberg still looks like Goldberg. Right. This is not like, you know. Sting or late era RVD or anything like that. Even Chris Jericho. Like Goldberg. Goldberg can still play Goldberg. So they, you know, he came out there and he cut a very authentic promo about how he really enjoys being Goldberg and being a superhero to young kids and how he wanted to be Goldberg one more time so his young son could see him be Goldberg. And he cut a very effective promo basically on Brock Lesnar, I guess, sort of. You know, Lesnar was sort of in here. Um, and it was so effective that he's like by far the biggest baby face on the roster now. <laughs> you have to put him over Brock, right? Now? I think you do, like, yeah. This, this I don't entire, like I don't trust this, the WWE to actually do it, of course, for a variety of reasons, but this entire build is that Goldberg wants to be Goldberg for one last time and you know, wants to come in and spear and jackhammer the toughest guy. You can't right. have him lose. And there are it's certainly depressing. ways you you can garbage it up and Sure, so, you know, Lesnar's obviously having a big match at WrestleMania, so the easy thing is whoever Lesnar's having a big match with at WrestleMania screws Lesnar out of this match. And Lesnar can do those fluke jobs every now and then, and it's not going to kill him. He did one to The Undertaker last year that I don't even think anybody remembers anymore. Uh, I think it's... Well, I mean, I think they handled him poorly last year in general, but sure. Sure, but Lesnar's still going to be He's off Lesner. TV enough that it's still a right. big deal whenever he's around because they've sort of marshaled out how they use him. Right. So, I mean, I yeah, no, I think Lesnar's going over, and I think it's going to be kind of like a deflating, yeah. you know, weird ending to the show when Lesnar goes over. Do we think this ends up with Goldberg, like, having multiple matches? Because he seemed pretty... 
you know, pretty yeah, steadfast that this was just like a one match for his boy and that was it. I mean, he's one of those guys that has definitely stayed away for, what, 12, 13 years now and there's not, where there was probably money left on the table. Sure, and it's also possible that this one match is perfect, that he'll get a huge reaction for this one match and had they pushed it further, he'd stop getting huge reactions. Yep. Um, especially, this is going to be a hard match to do. Yes. Goldberg, Goldberg in his prime would have had a tough time working a 2016 Brock Lesnar match. And yes. He's <laughs> in his late 40s now. Uh, again, you can, you know, there's ways. Yeah. They got, they got their Sting matches. You know, Sting broke his neck in the second one, but... You know, I, I don't know whether Bill Goldberg is capable of going out there and taking 10, like, released German suplexes either. Yeah. Which is a problem, and that's been a problem in some, you know, that was a problem in the Undertaker matches, it was a problem in the Randy Orton match. I, so I don't know whether the match is going to be any good, but I think that the whole point of the thing is... You know, the entrance and them staring off and looking at the crowd and they're going to try and create that kind of moment. And whether the match is any good, it's probably largely superfluous to that. Uh, I'm I'm more interested in Goldberg and this Survivor Series match than anything I've been got at least since Triple H won the Royal Rumble and maybe <laughs> further back than that. Um, I guess Hell in the Cells this weekend? Is it? I think it is. Yeah, because Raw's in Hartford next Monday, so I think they got to be in Boston sure. this weekend for it. I'm vaguely curious about how they do the Charlotte-Sasha Hell in a Cell match. I don't understand why they keep going back and forth about whether this is the main event. Just, like, make it the main event. It would be a really big deal if you did. Yep. And, like, Kevin Owens versus Seth Rollins is not a major match. I mean, they freaking on the last brand pay per view they ran Orton against Bray Wyatt as the main. So, right, like you can just, and it would have made a much bigger deal had they been pushing it for the last three weeks. Is this is the first women's Hell in the Cell? This is the first women's main event. This is a really big deal. Yeah, I mean, you could get some actual like media exposure for it. Probably they don't normally get right, right. Like you know, I it's going to be a tough match for them to work. I saw someone on Twitter right before we recorded this talking about doing it like the uh, like the Bondacano match or that's Bondacano the Asia Kong uh, Hakuto matches from, uh, I just don't they think they can work that style without Charlotte killing her I don't think Charlotte's good enough yeah, yeah. I mean because she's Charlotte's... not a monster heel like Asuka could work that style Right, like, eventually there's going to be an Asuka-Sasha Banks match, which everybody's going to give, like, five stars to yeah. in that style. Like, that's coming at some point. Right. Because, um, you know, Asuka was having four-and-a-half-star matches with Bailey in that style, and Sa- I love Bailey, but Sasha Banks is a much better worker for yeah. that style of match. <sighs> yeah, I... I that I, Again, I just don't understand why they wouldn't put that match on last. It's like yeah. you've got so... And this is the match that you do it for. Yeah, I could see it. I just, like, as much as I enjoy watching Sasha Banks, I feel like she's going to just, like, she's going to, like, hard way juice in this match or something. She's going to do something. Yeah, and it's going to, like, freak out everyone in the back for years. Yeah. 
there's been reports that Vince is down on her because of her inability. I don't know whether it's inability to stay healthy or inability to um, bump safely. I mean, she just takes ridiculous, stupid bumps. Right. And And she she gets hurt. She doesn't have the bases. She's like 110 pounds, probably. I'm saying she's not working with people that can make it more safe either. Right. Yeah. I I mean, Bailey was actually a really good base for that kind of stuff, even though Sasha was working heel at the time. Sasha's, or Charlotte's botchy. Like, she's not great. She's very good at a certain style of match, and she's very athletic. She's green is really what it comes down to. She's only been working for, what, like three years, something like that. So she's still kind of green, as good as she's gotten in that time period. Yeah. One of, one of the other issues with this match is, like, this should really be the blow-off of this program, but because they separated the yeah, women's rosters, it's going to, like, they just need to not have these women's rosters be separate. You know, it's like they're dragging out this, like, Becky Lynch, Alexa Bliss program for, like, forever. Yeah. It would be so much easier if you could rotate Becky Lynch back into, you know, with Sasha. Yeah, like, like, the logical... Once you have Sasha win the blow up, the logical next opponent is Nikki Bella, right? As sort of For the Sasha? queen of the division. I mean, so I guess they're trying to portray Nikki Bella more in a face, yeah, of course, type situation. I it's they turned the it's, Bellas like so many times at this point. It's almost. I mean, my assumption is that Sasha is probably a long term tweener and is probably sure. turning at some point. Yeah, she's going to turn on Bailey at some point so they can run those matches again. Right, and that's probably, you know, that could be a WrestleMania program for this year. Um, I don't think she's ever going to turn turn, but her character the entire time has still been kind of heelish. And not in, like, you know, like, she's not cutting, like, the generic, like, Seth Rollins, Roman Reigns, babyface promo, thank God. Oh, God, can you imagine Sasha cutting that promo? Like, Charlotte was cutting those promos for a while, and it was such a disaster, they had to turn her heel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it would be, like, if they could, like, throw, like, Natalia in, you know, they could get, like, a month or two out of Sasha Banks versus sure. Natalia. But instead, the, I don't... Who even is on the Raw Women's Right? I mean, are they going to do, like, you Sasha Banks versus... Sasha Banks versus Dana Brooke is a program? I guess. Ugh. I guess they did just put Dana Brooke over Bailey. That probably actually is where they're going. There you go. Oh, that's going to be awful. Well, you know. All right, we, we're now talking about WWE women's booking. It's probably a good time to wrap up. It does feel like that. So, yeah. with all of that said, I don't even know what we're going to do next week. I guess we can kind of, sort of, maybe get into off-season stuff. Well, we're going to be, what, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday off, Saturday. So we're going to be in Game 5-ish of the World Series. So we could be talking about uh, your second favorite team winning the World Series by that. Well, or we could be talking about, you know, the continuation. This really has been, to me, and obviously we don't know what's going to happen in the World Series, but, like, one of the great postseasons of all time. It's it has been, so a, lot. Much been a lot of stuff. good games, yeah. Yeah, just so much good stuff. Uh, you know, so we could be talking about... You know, oh my God, they're tied two two. You know, oh God, it's Kluber gonna go one four seven. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, whatever happens, we'll be talking about it next week on another edition. But for all you kids out there.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.